I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. The year is 1960. The album is The Button Down, Mind Strikes Back, the artist Bob Newhart, and my guest is Griffin Newman. Thank you so much for doing the show. Oh, please. Thank you for uh, uh, hounding me uh, consistently to make this happen, because I'm, I'm bad about remembering to do things. I get you. Yeah. I, I totally understand. Why did you pick Bob Newhart? Uh, yeah, and this album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he's one of my favorite comedians. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if he's not my number one, he's maybe the guy I think about most in terms of albums. Mm-hmm. Because I think what he did to comedy albums with comedy albums was so radical. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's so bizarre that he became such a big... <laughs> Uh, like record star. Yeah, I mean the, these two albums, the the first two button down albums, uh, came out within the same year, mm-hmm. and he was uh, the one and two on the Billboard charts at the same time. Right, which was unmatched until Guns N' Roses did Use Your Illusion one and two, who so are my favorite so. band of all time. Uh-huh. So in this weird way, I link up those two as like Bob <laughs> Newhart and Axl Rose as my guys, <laughs> even though they're stylistically very different. Uh-huh. And one of them I'm a lot closer to in temperament than the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're very radical albums. Uh, they're still very different how, from how anyone does comedy albums today. Yeah. Which is bizarre because it was kind of... They were two of the first real mainstream breakthrough comedy albums. Yeah. The, I, I guess the notion of like the party record and that kind of thing. And then also this insane lore that they were like essentially the fourth and sixth times he ever performed yeah it angers me yeah it's it's bananas Mm -hmm. but it's kind of like there are these amazing artifacts because uh he was just this guy who somehow um it's not that he arrived fully formed right but that he somehow was just like at the right place at the right time doing a thing that tapped into the culture Mm -hmm. and like exploded and it seems totally uh uh, improbable. Yeah, and that he would become that big of a star doing such kind of cerebral, mm-hmm. erudite comedy. Right. Yeah. And there's not an ounce of him that is too cool at any point on either of these albums. No. He no. laughs at himself in the nerdiest ways possible. Usually, yes. Like, weird breathy laughs at his own shit. Right. I mean, these are sort of like like you know history nerd riffs. Uh huh. You know, they're yeah. like very academic, and that he's like breaking down these like incidents with all these specific details. And then making them sort of loose and conversational. I mean, he's just doing the juxtaposition game. Sure. But in order to do those, he has to know these things like the back of his hand. Mm-hmm. Whether it's, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation or whether it's, you know, just the uh, the sort of script that a driving instructor is working off of. Oh, right. It's the stuff that a lot of people consider to be boring. Mm-hmm. And he is a guy who is not trying to make it any cool, mm-hmm. any cooler than it is, isn't trying to jazz it up is kind of inherently a sort of quote-unquote lame guy. Yeah. And then somehow he became this, like, national sensation. Yeah, yeah. In this way where he seemed kind of radical. Mm-hmm. And there's so, they are, these these bits are, again, there's an airplane bit on this one. Yeah. Which, obviously, we're used to that being a thing that we always talk But I, it's very much, I think there are probably bits and pieces that were cannibalized from that 
into even his sitcom. Like, there's some shit that's yes. still so universally, it just spread for another well, 15 years. it's and he, the brilliant thing where, like, they said, like, okay, we should make a Bob Newhart sitcom. What's the Bob Newhart thing? Uh-huh. And they were like, he's good at listening. Yeah. So let's make a show where he's a therapist. Mm-hmm. But what's crazy about that is his trademark was being good at listening uh-huh. on albums. Right. Like, when you watch him perform... Whether you're watching video of him doing stand-up or whether you're watching him on sitcoms, he is one of the great comedic reactors. Absolutely. And obviously, if he's on camera, you're seeing his sort of facial expressions, you're sensing his body language, these things that really kill it. But somehow, his silences are funny Hmm. on an album where you're not seeing any of that. Right. And it blows my mind because they feel so particular. Somehow, you're getting his energy in the silences, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just the timing. It's not how long he's pausing. It's that you can tell what kind of silence it is. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is the silence of someone who has something they want to say and they're biting their tongue. Right. Versus this is the silence of someone who is at a loss, Mm -hmm. you know, and and they're distinct. Mm -hmm. And so I just go like, how did these two albums that were like 30 minutes long. Right. Recorded by who was essentially an open micer. Yeah. Doing a, a wildly different format. I mean, obviously, there's this sort of the whole historical fight between him and Shelley Berman. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Shelley Berman wasn't very mainstream. No, no. And on paper, Bob Newhart seems less mainstream. Right. And then somehow just blew up. Yeah. I, I was thinking about, I actually, right before you got here, I was mm-hmm. watching Shelley Berman's bit about a jumper, alleged jumper, which yeah. is, it's, they're separate, very different bits, distinct, yes. and their right. own shit. And Shelley Berman is so animated. Yes. So, like, vocally, right. too. Yes. He's like, okay, okay. He's just, like, much more, like, I don't know, like a more Jack Lemon energy. Well, was, just like, Shelley Berman was Compass Players? Was that, that I don't know. Right? I can't He was remember. one of those, I, I forget which one, but he was one of those early, early sort of experimental improv comedy groups mm-hmm. like that. I Maybe think that's Compass right. Players. That sounds right. But it, it, Someone will ring me for saying the wrong thing. But um, he definitely comes out of that sketch comedy tradition. Sure. Where he is trying to sort of, you know, people the stage. Mm-hmm. He is trying to do a one-person scene. Uh-huh. It's more of a theatrical skill piece. I don't say any of this in any backhanded way. No, of course. Shelley Berman's great. I only got into the Shelley Berman albums years later after realizing, oh, wait, there's this question of whether or not Newhart was lifting from him. Right. But I do think it is just sort of to a degree a parallel thinking thing because even yeah. when they have bits on the same subjects they are so radically different yeah and they're so specific to those guys perspective for sure it's the equivalent of you know airplane airplane food bits or whatever it is mm-hmm. and this is a time where like stand-up is really kind of transforming and you're right. having people trying to push the boundaries of what it is kind of makes sense that two guys would come at it from the same angle mm-hmm. and then the other nuts thing with Newhart is that like the origin of him doing these albums is that he used to do these bits with his friend over the phone yeah that it was like they, he was a patent clerk right i think so yeah and I, his friend worked in some other office job and they mm-hmm. were both bored and had too much free time on their hands mm-hmm. and they would call each other and have these like you know comedically banal conversations right what if you know this famous historical event this extreme circumstance sounded as boring as two guys who don't have anything to do during office hours mm-hmm. calling each other and then he eventually said to the guy, I, I hate being a patent clerk. Mm-hmm. Or he wasn't a patent clerk. I'm sorry. He worked in the unemployment office. That makes sense. Because okay. the thing he said was that he started realizing that the people he was giving the unemployment checks to 
made more money than he did working at the unemployment <laughs> office. That's the big moment. So yeah. then he realizes, maybe he was a patent clerk at some earlier point, but I know that was the final moment where he said, why don't I make a go of this and see? And he's pretty old at that point. Mm-hmm. I mean, not like ancient, but he's not 19 years right. old. He's had yeah. a life. He's married. I think he already has his kids at this point. And he decides, like, let me see if I could do anything with those routines I do with my friend. And he asks the friend, do you want to do this? He goes, no, I'm not going to go into comedy. Right. I don't want to be a comedian. I have an office job. I have kids to support. I'm not doing that. So Newhart essentially just lifted half of those bits mm-hmm. with the guy's permission. Sure. But where Shelley Berman was going, how do I write a one-sided conversation and make it feel like a full scene? Mm-hmm. Newhart just cut out the other half of the dialogue, mm-hmm. which shouldn't By work. nature should not work. Because the thing is, like, you would think there's so much information missing, I'd have to telegraph so much that it would no longer be funny. Right, because they're Nichols and May routines, essentially, uh-huh. that he removed one half from. They're these improvised, conversational, mm-hmm. you know, uh, sort of behavioral comedy routines that he took the other half away from. And the skill in both the performance and the writing is that he's somehow not just doing, being overly expository on his side of the phone call. He's never saying more than what that person would say. Right. Because I feel like often when people try to do these comedy routines, you know, this style, they over-explain things in a way that that loses the realism of the, the phone call, the conversation format. And with him, he's honestly, it's its just like he figures out the one word he needs to say, mm-hmm. the one choice of phrasing that tells you everything you need to know about the dynamic, mm-hmm. about the relationship, about the energy, the characters, the situation, whatever it is. It's just kind of bug nuts. But doing these, those kind of, because they're shortcuts, yes. doing them naturalistically, because yeah. he is one of my favorite naturalistic comedic right. characters, like right. of all time. Right. To do those shortcuts again and make them seem like, oh, no, this is the only way that could ever be said ever in a conversation. And yeah. then I get the fucking joke. And again, like you say, it works on an album just right. as well as in person. I, I mean, he, some of his biggest laughs he gets out of going, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Right. Where you don't have any idea what, say, Abraham Lincoln is saying to him. Right. And he never fills it in. Mm-hmm. But he tells you everything you need to know by how sort of skeptically the guy is responding to Lincoln's mm-hmm. idea. And that's sort of the brilliance of it is it's like real comedy of implication mm-hmm. that somehow doesn't feel uh, cheap right, or uh, obtuse. Yeah. That it, that it is so specific. And I mean, you said the thing about him being so radically uncool. I, I mean, I kind of I went through Newhart sort of backwards uh-huh. where it was I. Just he was a guy I kept seeing in things, For whether sure. it was I was watching old TV or when he would show up in movies or mm-hmm. whatever it was. And more and more, I was just like, God, he's kind of one of my favorite character actors. Mm-hmm. You know, watching something like In and Out or Elf, I'd just oh, yeah, be like, right. guy's such a good like supporting actor. And I knew he was like a sitcom guy in a stand up, mm-hmm. but I was never into him as in, as a kid in the way I was with, say, like. You know, Steve Martin, I was all in. Mm-hmm. I was watching Steve Martin movies, but I was also, I was listening to those albums. I was watching his specials. You know, like 2,000-year-old man. Like, I was in on those things in addition to watching Reiner and Brooks's work on their own. Mm-hmm. But Bob Newhart, I was just like, yeah, I know he does other comedy stuff, but, like, you know, I, I'm not really digging in. And then it, it hit a tipping point of me just constantly going, like, God, his timing and his delivery is so funny. Mm-hmm. There are few people who seem like they're doing that little work. Right. Who are that effective. And and obviously the sort of stammering, which he talks about is like wasn't a thing he developed. It was something he chose not to fight against. That makes sense. 
And he talks a lot about the difference between stammering and stuttering. Uh-huh. You know, um, but that that a lot of what was interesting about him, his lack of coolness wasn't him developing a nerd persona right. in a way that perhaps some other comedians of this time were doing. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he, he says that, like, you know, he tried wearing a toupee early on in his like, career. And the first two shows, people just wouldn't stop heckling him. Of course. And he was like, it just doesn't suit my head. Mm-hmm. I look so foolish trying to look better yeah. that I'm just going to own it. And that's how you get this, like, 35-year-old stammerer mm-hmm. who just quit, a, like, a, a unemployment office job yeah. uh, with, like, openly with a kind of crappy hairline becoming, like, the top-selling artist of the year. I mean, he won album of the year from the Grammys. Yeah. He beat music albums. Uh-huh. I mean, it was bananas. Yeah. Um, but I, I was watching him show up in movies or TV guest appearances or any of that. And then uh, uh, I, I think I got, you know, like a season of the Bob Newhart show uh-huh. at uh, uh, Cracker Barrel. Like they had, I was like at a Cracker Barrel with my family, and in their DV selection, they had like, you know, seven ninety nine the whole first season of Bob Newhart show. And period of time where you couldn't get TV DVDs for that little. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like now it's crazy that we ever paid this much, but it used to be like, well, of course, a season of television costs sixty dollars on DVD. Right, right. You know, in standard def. Uh huh. And I bought that, and I watched it obsessively uh, my freshman year of college. Uh, when I was on the verge of dropping out, getting really depressed, I would just stay in my room all day and watch the Bob Newhart show. And then when I flew back home for the holidays, I, I bought his uh, memoirs at the airport. Mm-hmm. So then I was kind of all in on this guy and came home, told my parents I was dropping out of college. They convinced me to go back to school. I went back for another six weeks and just uh, was morbidly depressed and pretty much only spending my time uh watching reading and listening to bob newhart i get that i went into this like this is my guy right now Mm -hmm. and i've read the book and i have a sense of the perspective of his career and i'm watching the show and i'm buying the albums i'm taking my bicycle to borders and i'm Mm -hmm. finding which button down cds they still have in stock on physical media and i just kind of got all into the guy and shortly after that was when i really started doing stand-up in in earnest doing open mics and stuff and, you know, I only had maybe one or two bits that I feel like I was very consciously like, this is a new heart bit. Okay. I, I wasn't necessarily trying to do the same format, but he was always kind of this guy I was looking to. Once again, even more than guys like Steve Martin, who yeah. I prefer, Newhart was kind of like, this is sort of what I'd like to be as a performer in the sense that he felt uh, very intellectual and very thoughtful without being uh, sort of elitist or erudite. For sure. Because I feel like you have a lot of guys who, you know, if the bit is, I'm a nerd, I'm Mm -hmm. a nebbish, Mm -hmm. it's that they're overcome by life. Of course, yeah. If the bit is, I'm intelligent, I have a sense of perspective on history, I'm Mm well-read, they're sort of playing the the blue, I'm sorry, the um, blue blood, upper crust Mm -hmm. sort of uh, kind of thing. Um, you know, or the the sad sack routine, the Rodney Dangerfield thing. Yeah. I mean, he's combining elements of all of these, but they never felt like they were an affected, I'm going to pick this one element of my personality and play it up. For sure. It sort of felt organic that he was all three of these guys at the same time mm-hmm. in the way that most of us are a couple different people at odds with ourselves. But if you look at stand-up in the 60s, very often people would just pick the one thing yeah. and double down on it. Yeah. And so for him to find this weird kind of 
a persona that's harder to get a handle on mm-hmm. because it's not heightened. Mm-hmm. He's not making himself into the sort of the in quotes version of himself. Right. Uh, but then also to do this very daring approach to format is kind of bug nuts. And the answer is that only happens when a guy has just quit a job, mm-hmm. feels like he has nothing to lose, yeah. and doesn't suspect that anyone will ever listen to this album. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Because it's not it's not character comedy. No. At all. No. But as you say, there's going to be a level of persona. But he's got this... And again, maybe... I, I, I do wonder if I'm taking for granted general public knowledge of shit that he's talking about where I, I feel like... I, I don't know. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, I do wonder... What if it would work now if you were to get up right now and do this entire album for a group? What yeah. would play? I mean, it gets to that zone of like um, when I when I go down rabbit holes of watching old Simpsons, mm-hmm. I sometimes have to remind myself like this is kind of the first time that someone was calling out something like this in a TV show. Yeah, the fact that the Simpsons was kind of the first place to kind of fully realize an entire town. Mm-hmm. And the dynamics of every part of that town. Yeah. You know, because their cast is so wide ranging. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those jokes are just the observation of, you know, so much of comedy's observation that certain things work because they're literally just the first person to make the point. Uh huh. You're at the right place at the right time and you call it out and you go, have you ever noticed this? Right. And some of that stuff is only kind of funny when you view it in retrospect and you go, I guess if you were the first person to identify that. That's always the hardest thing. Yeah. Right. In the same way that the first time you hear someone crack an impression of somebody, mm-hmm. you know, like I was I was talking with my buddy about the uh, uh, Andy Samberg, Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, yeah. The first time he did that sketch where you were just like, God, Mark Wahlberg has been famous for 15 years. <laughs> and up until this point, we all thought it was impossible to do an impression of him. Right. Right. It just didn't feel like there was a thing there. Mm-hmm. He's not specific enough to do an impression of. 100%. And then he did it, and you went, Jesus Christ, it was there the whole time. Yeah. And it's not a very difficult impression. Mm-hmm. Any of us can do it. Yeah. Anyone can riff in character as Mark Wahlberg. Some yeah. do it better. But now everyone can do a Mark Wahlberg impression. And also, simultaneously, he became a bigger star. Right. It was like once the impression was there and everyone realized, like, oh, that's what his persona is. Mm-hmm. That's the quality. It felt like Mark Wahlberg leveled up to this other thing. That's a good point. And Newhart has an element of that where it's just like some of these things where it's like, okay, he's doing airplane humor. He's doing DMV humor. Uh You know, he's hitting Lincoln. Uh, You ask how much these things were in sort of the general vernacular at the time. And I wonder if it was more that these things were kind of unspoken at the time. Mm -hmm. That he was going out on the limb of... Here are things that we don't really put thought into. For sure, yeah. That either we're told in school or the most mundane parts of our day, mm-hmm. types of people, right? weird uh, sort of linguistic choices, yeah. terms that people use, and he was just kind of the guy calling them out. The reason why these albums still hold up today is that the writing and the performance are so precise. For sure. That there's sort of just inherent comedic energy to how he's doing it and not just what he's riffing on Mm -hmm. and he does some brilliant front loading with actually it's good that you brought up the simpsons because (laughs) there's there's a bit that i mean the monkeys bit the simpsons totally stole they did it in in their own way right which is like maybe my favorite comedy bit of all time Uh uh-huh it's perfect and it's what like 25 seconds yeah it's very short right it's just perfect but but it's that kind of the that the joke is almost just the setup Mm -hmm. 
And then you wonder how he could make the payoff any funnier when he's already explained the gag in the setup. Right. And the answer is in just the the specificity of the thing. Mm-hmm. Who the person is who's saying the thing mm-hmm. and how they're saying it. Right. Because that premise, the joke is half there before he even says, and it, it would go a little something like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you realize, like, when I started listening to his albums, I went like, oh, when people are making fun of hacky comedians... They're sort of making fun of the people who were ripping off Bob, Bob Newhart. Yeah, 100%, yeah. I mean, just that setup of like, you know, I was thinking the other day. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was sort of his real thing because he had to set the stage for people to understand the circumstances of the scene he was going to do. Yeah. Because he was an act-out only comedian. Right. That was always really fascinating to me, that he, he was just act-outs and setups. What, what's the stuff that you did that you were talking about earlier where it's like, oh, this is a new hard bit. This is like, can you talk? I mean, yeah, without- yeah, yeah. I used to do a bit that was about the idea of um, uh, when when people come up with like absurd dares, mm-hmm. like a really disgusting or really embarrassing or a really painful thing. And they mm-hmm. go like, you wouldn't even do that for like a million dollars. You wouldn't do that for a million dollars. You're seriously saying you wouldn't do it. One million, two million dollars, you wouldn't do it. And the bit was... I think through this logically, there, there's no way I would ever take the money because think about having to spend the rest of your life explaining to people how you became a millionaire. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I would do that setup. Yeah. And I go, and I think it would go a little something like this. You know, I didn't say it that way, but <laughs> right. I would, you know, I'd set the stage in that way. And at this point in time, I would, I would bring a boom box with me on stage because uh, I wanted to be like, uh, you know, Galifianakis or any of the people who were playing instruments on stage okay. and could have that sort of scene mood setting, mm-hmm. but I have no musical ability. Okay. So I would make uh, like a playlist, I'd burn it onto a CD Amazing. and bring a, a shitty boombox on stage that I'd stolen from a summer camp I worked at. <laughs> and uh, and I, would, I would play music, I'd play this orchestral suite. And the scene was, it was a guy bringing a date back to his mansion afterwards <laughs> and he's running through all the stuff mm-hmm. he has showing her his collection this is my library it's all first editions uh-huh bearskin rug this and that how did i uh uh make my money uh <laughs> uh my friends uh bet me two million dollars to get fisted by shack <laughs> stupid i love it. that was i love bit. it it's that was delightful though i mean and it was that was the one that was most influenced by the infinite number of, of typewriters mm-hmm. uh, infinite number of monkeys rather because it was just like the you just get to that and yeah. then and then the end of the thing was i would just sort of sit in that silence and then i would go so right so yeah this is my library <laughs> trying to resume the date that it. was the whole bit you but know i was legitimately it works in the same way because this i was laughing in the setup you know, I laughed that at the was, explanation. Right, and that that's... was the trick for me. Was like, can the setup be almost as long, if not longer, than yeah. the act out? Yeah. And you know where it's going, but it's just in the execution of the thing. I feel like that was one of the few times where I was like, I'm going to challenge myself to do a new heart bit. Yeah. Fully. And I don't know if I had many of the bits that were that fully set up in his format. Right. But I definitely would try to take elements of it. Mm-hmm. You know that the funny thing is playing against the energy of how you think someone would behave in that situation sure. in your act out. Right, right, right. You know, whereas a lot of act outs tend to be skill pieces, maybe. Mm-hmm. When comedians do act outs, it's an impression or it's an energy thing or yep. a commitment thing. You can't believe they're doing this. Mm-hmm. They're going this hard, this big. Uh, and and the, the new hard thing of just, no, you make it real small. Yeah. 
The second you go from the setup to the act out, you you shrink. Hey everybody, it's Jason. This week, Comedy on Vinyl is proudly sponsored by $300 Data Recovery. And there's a very good reason for that. Uh, that's because there would be no episode this week without them. And we'd have had to start the entire show from scratch if we hadn't found out about their services. So as you probably saw online a few weeks ago, my hard drive crashed. That was six terabytes, almost a million files, and they recovered everything for me. Uh, this was not an easy order either. I had four drives in one enclosure in a RAID setup, meaning you can't just plug in the drives and copy stuff over. They took my drives, examined them, determined whether or not they needed to open my drives up in their clean room. Luckily, they didn't for me, which sped some things up. And then they copied everything over to a very large USB drive for me. The rates are reasonable, as little as $300 a drive, hence the name. And they don't just work locally. You can send your drives into them. So go to $300DataRecovery.com. That's the number 300, then $DollarDataRecovery.com. Check them out, and once you do, back that stuff up again. That's a big thing. Um, I had a hard drive that was supposed to be foolproof, and it wasn't. And uh, $300 Data Recovery helped me out, saving 26-plus years of writing, art, photos, videos, everything, including this podcast. So check out $300 Data Recovery and let them know that Jason from Comedy on Vinyl sent you. Now, back to the show. Yeah. I mean, that that is, a, you know, I always stop and think, I'm like, why do I think he's such a good actor other than, obviously, he he's just believable? Yeah. I do... I mean, that sort of micro acting is perfect. He was maybe just built for the screen. I don't know yeah. if that's, I would love to have seen him on stage, obviously. Yeah. You know, but that's built for, you know, everything they tell you to do. Scale it the fuck down. Like right. back then they would just tone it down. Yeah. You know. Yeah, right. I mean, he was a natural, as opposed to a lot of comedians who uh, never totally worked on TV or in movies of that generation because mm -hmm. they were so big. They could rile the crowd up into a frenzy. Yeah. But on TV, it just kind of felt desperate, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. a lot of those sort of stickier guys. Right. And so it's one of those things where you go like almost it makes sense that he became a sitcom actor. It makes sense that he became a character actor. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really make sense that he was that successful as a comedian. <laughs> right. right. You know, it feels like one of those stories of like he was eating shit at open mics and then a casting director saw him mm -hmm. and put him on TV. Because right. they saw he could act. Uh -huh. Not because he was successful as a comedian. For sure. He feels like a guy who should have been failing. Right. That there shouldn't have been an audience for this. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just think about, uh, you know, people talk about owning the stage. Yeah. And when you are performing in a club, and, you know, there weren't alt rooms at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, he wasn't performing at, uh, you know, Largo. Right. You know, he right. was performing at, like, like jazz clubs. And mm -hmm. he was performing in Vegas. You know, I mean, he was at the same sort of venues as like the Rat Pack and stuff. Mm -hmm. And obviously he becomes famous pretty fast, but still like these audiences come out and they're drunk. Mm -hmm. They paid a lot of money. I want to be entertained. Mm -hmm. And so often they will smell the fear on you, yeah. which is why so many sort of low energy comedians will try to own the, I'm going to make myself even weirder. Right. I'm going to be a weirdo so the audience can start laughing at me immediately because mm -hmm. I'm clearly the butt of the joke or I'm so nervous or I'm so dorky or whatever it is. Yeah. And he just kind of feels like, you imagine if he's coming on stage for the first time, like why is my friend's dad doing comedy? <laughs> you know? Yeah. This is my friend whose dad is afraid to punish him. Yeah. And now he's getting up there to do a stand-up routine and you're probably just feeling embarrassed and nervous for him. Especially the <laughs> stammering thing, which there's... There's a precision to it, but it also doesn't feel studied. Right. Which is kind of incredible. Yeah. Like, he sort of just kind of knows how to feel out the rhythms of the thing. Yeah. 
And so many of those jokes are the kind of clipped him, you know, uh, trying to get the word out. You know, mm-hmm. that, that the sort of build up. I mean, I feel he's talked about his stammering as like um, a bit of a drum roll. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Because a, a stutter is kind of getting stuck on the same thing. Yeah. And stammering is building up to the thing. Yeah. And that it ends up working as a nice tension build for a guy who otherwise isn't really trafficking in tension. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I. It's making me think, because, you know, we've all seen bad comics. Uh, mm-hmm. And there can be, there's dead silence that is terrible yeah there's i'm figuring this joke out silence which is like depending on the situation you give them permission to figure their shit out if they're just working some bit out or something right, right? but they're terrible comics who don't know how to use a silence and don't realize that shouldn't be there yeah. his is like an informed silence for lack of a better word and it just sure. again it's you you are sucked in yeah sure it's what's around it but i mean can you can you think of any other reason why that's working so well you're good with it i mean i you know i listen to your podcast i watch you oh, on tv thank you. you're a very funny gentleman uh, so you're also very good with silences. So I'm just wondering, and maybe you haven't put any, you know, specific thought into it. You've just learned it. I mean, it, it's hard. It's tough because it's one of those things where it's like I have put specific thought into it in the sense of I would like to be good at that. Yes, right. I would like to be able to wield that as a as an instrument. Yeah. But it feels like just sort of trial and error right. to a degree. You can't math it out. No, no, you know, and, and and part of it is also um, finding the rhythms unique to uh, what you're doing and who you're doing it with. Yeah. You know, that that I would realize, like, uh, e- even doing that, that track bit, mm-hmm. which is very simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I didn't have a, a sort of preset, this is how long you pause. Mm-hmm it would be up to the audience. And I would usually put that, if not as my closer, at the end. Mm -hmm. And it would sort of be like, let me use the data I've accumulated over the last 10 minutes of talking to these people. And it wasn't even necessarily, if this show's going badly, let me make those pauses short because i got to get out of here. Uh, It it was just kind of feeling a a temperament. Because you do sometimes have shows where you go... This audience isn't laughing much, but they are listening. Right. It doesn't feel very good. <laughs> it, it never feels like a success, but you can kind of tell. My friend and I would always talk about like sort of the texture of the silence of you can tell when they're with you and when they're not, mm-hmm. whether they're curious or they're not, whether they're nervous for you or you're not, you know, yeah. uh, whether it's a respectful silence or for a silence sure. of indifference or any of those things. And I think it's just like it, it's a it's a. A hundred, uh, ten thousand hours thing. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of like a being able to literally read the room. Yeah. And then something like my podcast or something like doing the tick, you mm-hmm. know, where like, uh, you know, uh, Peter is a comedian. Yeah. Uh, Sir Fanwatch who plays the tick is a comedian, comes from sketch comedy, comes from theater, uh, you know. And so, so we're coming from similar backgrounds in mm-hmm. certain ways at very different uh, levels of uh, experience. Uh, and and the actual work, but in terms of spending that much time thinking about the math of comedy and yeah. then trying to make the math not look formulaic. Yeah. So that's something where you sort of just kind of feel it out and play it out. But then something like doing my podcast, uh, David Simms, who I do my podcast with, who I think is an incredibly funny person mm-hmm. and makes me laugh the most more than most people in my life, is not a comedian. Mm-hmm. He is a film critic. Yeah. And uh, we just have similar senses of humor. And we have similar 
um, inspirations comedically. Okay. But he's not a performer. I mean, he hates any time we have to do any sort of live show thing. Really? Yeah. I mean, he feels comfortable enough in the space when we're in a studio and the only people are listening are our friends. Yeah. Our producers, our friends, yeah. you know, our guests are our friends. And I find that he picks up really well on what I'm throwing down comedically. And also, I mean, I think that's sort of when I started feeling like we should do a podcast together was he would sort of act out people's careers in that kind of way. Uh-huh. We would talk about like actors or directors and would be like, you know, I, I guess they were probably thinking like, and he would act out what like, you know, Mel Gibson's internal monologue was yeah. in writing Hacksaw Ridge or whatever. <laughs> and I would always just find it so uh, funny. Yeah. But, but it was a lot of the same kind of Newhart thing Yeah. where what was funny was that he wasn't acting out grand proclamations. He was acting out the sort of slow build of the thought process of yeah. what you were doing. And I, I feel like, you know, I had to learn a sense of timing with him and a timing with Peter. Mm-hmm. I learned a timing when, you know, you're on stage inherent to each bit, but also inherent to each audience. Yeah. And I really think it is just a like, you know, I, I do a lot less stand up. Uh, these days and and who knows if I will do more of it at some point or if I you know uh, that was sort of just a chapter in my life but um, I, I feel like my friends would always criticize me and say uh, you, you could be a lot more consistent mm-hmm. if you were more precise like sometimes you kill so hard and sometimes you don't and it's because you refused to do the things that you learned worked. And it was because for me, uh, and this wasn't any sort of great ideological stance, it was more sort of maybe self-destructive curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, anytime something worked, I would always be interested in then altering the formula again. Yeah, I was like, so that worked. That was the greatest laugh that bit has ever gotten. Yeah, now let that. me do two more shows and try one where I go 10% in one direction from what worked and 10% in the other direction from what worked. Right. And then maybe I retreat back into the other thing. But it was, you know, I think you only learn how to use silence like that if you're just constantly experimenting in that way. For sure. And Newhart had the, you know, eight years of just doing phone calls with his friends for a one-person audience, someone he knew was locked into the same sense of humor that he was. Right. And it was only for his own self-satisfaction. So I think he just sort of established his own metronome. Mm Mm-hmm. Because by the time he finally got up in front of a real audience, he was weirdly fully formed. Right. In terms of, I know what I'm doing, take it or leave it. Yeah. I don't think he was that confident in no, how no, he no. said it. But he was just like, this is the kind of comedy I want to do. Yeah. I, I hope there's an audience for it. Right. But I'm not going to try to come out tomorrow and do Shecky Green if this bombs. Yeah, yeah. Even, I mean, even with, even with gaps, even with silences, even with taking his sweet time. Yeah. He's still going as fast as the bit needs to go, no slower. It is yeah. he is persisting. Those albums are tight. I mean, yeah. and they're short. And the bits aren't incredibly long. Occasionally right. we'll have one that runs a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. But they don't overstay their welcome. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I think that's just that's like a trial and error thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh it was occurring to me as I'm listening to it and as I'm just reading more about you, I'm it is occurring to me that you bear enough of a resemblance if they cast you in a Bob Newhart biopic, would you do it? Yeah, of course. Okay. Of course. Okay, I thought good. about it, and there was definitely a period of time where I was trying to work on the impression. Mm-hmm. I haven't done it in a while, but but there was a period of time where I was like, I should have more impressions. Your voice is close enough. It's now occurring to me. I think I could do it. I mean, as I get older, sure. I move into... He's got more of a Midwestern thing. For sure. But I feel like I could I could affect it if I had to. I mean, yeah, I would, I would, I would happily... 
do that. Say Warsh. I'm pretty sure he says Warsh. Warsh. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. There's a lot of that. A lot yeah. of the stuff my dad says. Yeah. Very comforting. In there. Sure. Um, he does sort of feel like your dad, though. I mean, that's the kind of thing. Not like your dad, I'm saying. I haven't <laughs> met your father. Or like my dad. But he just sort of feel like it feels like one's dad. Mm-hmm. And it's very rare that someone whose comedic identity is your dad mm-hmm. uh, isn't embarrassing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you... Okay, so out, outside of... We didn't even go over what the monkeys and typewriters bit is, but I mean, I feel like sure. we've talked about it enough. Are there other bits either on the first? We can talk about any. How many of his albums have you heard? Have you heard them all? Do you think? Uh, There's a ton of them. So I, I feel don't... like at least the first five. Okay. I mean, what? They're the first three button downs. Mm-hmm. There's the the button down on TV, which I'm not as familiar with. I don't know that one. Yeah, There's okay. the the windmills one. Yep. That um, one's crazy. That's yes, kind of a crazy the one. the windmills are weakening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not a completist. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert, but sure. I'd say I have a pretty strong working knowledge of like the first five years of his stand-up. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's more than I've got. So sure. I'm I'm just curious if there's stuff, uh, if there's anything that stands out that we're not talking about, or even honestly, even episodes of, of his show, because I I love that I have somebody on on here that knows yeah. the show well yeah. enough. And weirdly, I've barely watched any of New Hearts, which I feel like is the more popular one now. For whatever reason, I just, in that moment, got very deep into the Bob Newhart show. Well, the Bob Newhart show is better, though. I mean, I grew I, up with I Newhart. Kinda, right, yeah. And, but, and I loved it, loved it, loved it. And yeah. then, finally, Nick at Night started airing. I'm like, oh, no, this is this is it. Yeah. This is, And you're watching... I, you, you can watch sitcoms and clearly see people evolve as actors. Yeah. I don't know that he does, and I don't care. Right. I don't know if that happens. What, what, maybe what about gets you? more comfortable. Sure. I mean, there's that thing. I, I do believe anyone who's been doing something long enough starts to have the energy just of a professional. Yeah. It, it's the kind of thing where, you know, the feelings, the difference between... Uh, uh, someone in med school and and a proper doctor who's had a, a practice for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, when a doctor talks to you with a certain level of comfort of, I have been asked this question 5,000 times. Yep, yep. I, I, I know this. Mm-hmm. Um, he certainly grows into a certain confidence that way. Uh, apologies for the uh, vacuum cleaner sound <laughs> in the background. Um, we're, we're at That's a, what a filters are for right now. Um, <laughs> I'm not vacuuming while talking. Um but uh, uh, sorry, what were we talking about? Specific bits. Yeah, I mean the the Abe Lincoln one is a big one for me, sure. um, just because that feels so sort of inside baseball for its time, mm-hmm. um, and it it feels like what's kind of crazy about it to me is that uh, this is when he was on the absolute. It's only getting louder. This vacuum cleaner. <laughs> The absolute outskirts of, of show business before, yeah. and that's on the first album. That's the first track on the first album. I, I think, think so. is yes. The Abe Button down one? mine is Abe Lincoln versus uh, Madison Avenue is his opener, mm-hmm. and um, I listen to that bit and I'm like, this is the best sort of exploration of network notes I yeah. have ever heard. Yeah. Now that I've been lucky enough to work on some TV shows uh-huh. and listening to the maddening rounds of questions and notes that you get, mm. where they second guess every single thing, yeah. while also acting like they love you and that you're going to be a big success. Mm-hmm. And it's tinged with so much fear that they're trying to hide of, <laughs> I think you're going to fail and this is gonna, I'm going to get taken down with it. So I'm trying to cut my losses by moving this thing as fully into the middle as possible. Yeah. You know, how do I make it so that there's nothing objectionable in here? Right. Which is why most TV shows end up on the air being very, very sort of uh, uh, offensively inoffensive. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and just sort of uh, not taking any stance whatsoever. Right. And Abe Lincoln versus Madison Avenue is just like, here's a speech that we all agree was perfect. Mm-hmm. And, and just apply to it the game of, here are the guys who tried to get him to change it. Yeah. I, and I wonder what's playing the best for those people. If I, I'm assuming it's not... It's not an immediate knowledge of PR. It's that's what's crazy. Is you go like because he's doing a very specific impression mm-hmm. of a PR guy. You know, he's not a transformative actor. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not a character comedian. Mm-hmm. But he does really change his speaking rhythms yeah. and his verbiage. I mean, he's more fast talking in the in the Madison Avenue one. Yeah, and he's got less of the stammer going on for sure. And so much of it is this type of of guy you know we love it we love what you're doing Abe. Mm. let me just throw out a few mm. quick suggestions mm-hmm. and i go how did people have a frame of reference for this guy right or was it just that the guy was inherently funny and yeah. they didn't get it was a realistic portrayal right i wonder that myself a lot. I, i'm trying to think what else could it be other than we all have shitty bosses this maybe all shitty bosses have an element of this in them but right. i don't know though because you, you typically you think of a super oppressive boss that you've got to bring home to the wife and, and yeah. show around right this is a very yeah i don't know the, what the this, fuck it it's is. this sort of killing you with kindness boss yeah the person who tries to act like they're supporting you rather than being the gruffs or a taskmaster mm-hmm. and is slowly chipping away at everything that you are inherently for sure yeah which i guess you know those bosses exist those coworkers exist mm-hmm. those teachers exist i mean maybe people are pulling from whoever the closest equivalent of that in their life is but it does feel so uh specific yeah and you- and just that sort of i mean what you're saying about uh was this stuff common knowledge then more so than it is now right but sort of you know you grow up learning these lincoln quotes mm-hmm. and you don't really question them absolutely you just go like well i've just been told unequivocally that this is one of the best things an american has ever said mm-hmm. and this guy just applying the logic of like a four score that's going to confuse people <laughs> why not just say how long it's been you know yeah uh, which is true because all of us just go four score and we don't really, you know, very few people could with a gun pointed at their head. Right. Cold tell you how long four score is. For sure. You go, oh, fuck, I learned that at some point, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. One but, of the things. But the thing works, it transcends it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the thing that struck me when I was first, because I had listened to these before. Well, the first one before I ever started the podcast, but mm-hmm. you get into it and people are requesting shit you've never heard before. Uh-huh. But. The one thing that stands out to me, just as in terms of acting, faking a laugh is one of the hardest things I've ever even tried to do as an actor. His laughs in character are perfect. Yeah. They are perfect. Yeah. I don't know what that is. Yeah, and it's also, it's one of those things where somehow it's like an insincere, condescending laugh. For sure, yeah. But but it's it's like he's playing a bad actor. Yeah, which yeah. is the hard, another one of the hardest things to do mm-hmm. is to play someone faking something poorly. Yeah, but uh, not in a way that is just uh, tipping your hat to the audience. Right. Uh, it's it's pretty incredible. Yeah. And then I mean the the monkey typewriter bit, which is the last track on the second album, mm-hmm. which you know as I, I mean as we sort of said like he gets up with the 30 minutes of material he has they happen to record it they happen to release it mm-hmm. and it happens to go like multi-platinum yeah and so they immediately go what else you got and he goes nothing else <laughs> those were the first five bits i wrote and the only five bits i've written yeah and so he comes up with this other stuff so quick which is kind of crazy i mean he's just in this moment where it's just i, I you know i guess he's in sort of a flow state mm-hmm um because the output slows down every year after this it becomes a larger gap in between sure you know 
uh, it's two albums the first year, one album the second year, and then they start to become stretched more and more out as he goes more and more into TV and everything. Yeah. Um, and he had said, you know, the reason he went to TV was just he hated touring. Yeah. He had being on the road. He had being in Vegas. He's, he was already older at this point. Right. You know? Right. He's not breaking big when he's 20. He's breaking big when he's in his late 30s. Yeah. And he's like, I'd like to have normal hours again. Right. Um, but the infinite uh, number of uh, monkeys is just like a perfect setup. Uh, I mean, it's it's the same thing as what I was trying to do with my Shaq bit. Yeah. Of just like, what's a term that people use mm-hmm. or a hypothetical that people think about that's just common, accepted, like, yeah. you know, here's a, a, a sort of an old, uh, I don't know, axiom or an old metaphor, or an old, just one right. of those weird little uh, quirks of uh, common conversation uh, that no one ever actually interrogates in terms of trying to actually imagine living in that moment yeah and the second he tells you the bit of just you know they say you know a million monkeys uh, infinite number of monkeys infinite number of typewriters would end up one of them would end up writing shakespeare yeah uh you know god it must be so difficult you know to be the guy reading the typewriters Mm -hmm. and already the joke is funny yep and you kind of go what payoff is there that's funnier than that yeah and the answer is don't overstay your welcome the answer is you know, I'm I'm misquoting here, but you know, Jerry, I think I got one here. <laughs> you know, the guy who's just standing there and is so excited that he thinks he has something. Yeah. Uh, to be or not to be, that is the Gazorpa plot. <laughs> so great. And you're just done. Album out. Yeah. And the the logic chain of, well, when scientists say an infinite number of monkeys and an infinite number of typers, one of them would write Shakespeare. They just mean if. In an infinite realm of possibilities, eventually everything would happen. Mm -hmm. But the thing that he's pointing out that we never think about is that would mean there would also be an infinite number of circumstances where somehow, by random chance, they got close. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Gazorpaplorp is as random as the (laughs) fact that they got those 15 words correct in an order. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And the, the frustration of making it that far... And watching them boff it on the last word is just so fucking funny. Yeah. And then Gazorpa Plurp. I think it is Gazorpa Plurp, right? It's. Uh, it could, I'm close. It might be Gazornan Platts, if I, I'm that, not mistaken. That you're right. That's exactly yeah, what it is. Okay, it's yeah. Gazornan Platt. Yeah. Which is even funnier. Yeah. That's what it is. It's Gazornan Platt. Yeah. It's fucking. I don't know why it's so good either. Yeah. And I don't know. So wait. So how old were you when you discovered, like, how young? Uh, like 19. 19. 19 was when I was okay. going really into him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nobody else your age was listening to Bob Newhart. No. No. Very uncool. Yeah. Like incredibly uncool. Mm-hmm. Um, and I even feel like uh, in terms of legacy comedians at that point, uh, you know, in sort of the, the mid to late 2000s, he wasn't one of the guys that people were cribbing from. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, who is accepted as being on the sort of Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. I feel like as you go through generations, it's sort of like every generation has their, like, who's the comics comic of my time? Mm-hmm. Who's the comics comic from 10 years ago who's kind of a vet? Mm-hmm. Who's the comics comic from 40 years ago? Yeah. You know, you have each generation's sort of Mount Rushmore compiled of the top people from each decade. Yeah. And it felt like he's kind of one of the senior guys. I would argue now he kind of is the elder statesman. Yeah. I mean, there's no one really of his generation still around. I mean, after Don Rickles died, right, it's kind of... Right, that was the other great thing about him was that he was best friends with Don Rickles. Yeah. Do you know what his fa- who his favorite stand-up was to watch? Don Rickles. According to his son. 
Richard Pryor. Really? Yes. Massive Richard right, Pryor fan. Right. And and Rickles is the brashest guy. Yeah, of course. Right. right. Yeah. And apparently in private, Bob Newhart's more of a Rickles anyway, from what yeah. I understand. Yes. Yeah. I mean, by, by all accounts. And mm-hmm. apparently in private, Rickles is more of a Newhart. I mean, mm-hmm. he said that's the kind of weird thing. Yeah. Is that people go, how could those two guys get along so well? You know, Newhart has such like a, a delicate temperament, and Rickles is such a ball buster. Mm-hmm. And he said in reality, Rickles was was pretty mellow. Yeah. Off stage, he was a pretty shy, sensitive guy, mm-hmm. and Newhart could be a lot more prickly. He could get agitated a lot more. For sure. He was maybe a little closer to the characters that he would play in his act outs, mm-hmm. who were often presented as being kind of the villains of the piece. Right. You know. Well, the thing about Rickles too is like he had this. It's obvious. This surface dumb shit, all in, not all insults, but mm-hmm. it's just this very surface end of everything. It's like, I just want to remind everybody, I love I'm you all. I'm a nice all. guy. Blah, 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 right, blah, blah, right. blah. I gotta Newhart end it with a song. Doesn't fucking bother with that. Doesn't He's like, care. I just did a joke about suicide. Good night. Right. I don't care what people think of me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whereas Rickles, you could tell he really had to, at the end of the show, reminded them, like, it was just a joke. I'm kidding. I yeah. don't actually believe any of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's the story. I Stop me if it's come up on, on this podcast before, especially if you've covered. Newhart a lot, but the the Frank Sinatra dinner has anyone ever told this story? I don't know. I think this is essentially the funniest story of all time. Mm-hmm. And Newhart put it in his book, and uh, he used to tell it on late night as well. I mean, he would tell the story because okay. Rickles never wanted to tell the story because by telling it, he would be owning up to the bit. Okay, okay. So I he kind of gave Newhart license to you can tell it. Mm-hmm. But it was early days of Rickles' career before he got married. Because that was the other thing. Newhart's wife and Rickles' wife were best friends. They mm-hmm. would vacation together. They'd go to Disney World together, so Hawaii crazy. together, which is so crazy to think about. But um, this is when Newhart and Rickles are both working in Vegas. And Rickles isn't married yet. And he's on date with a woman. It might have been the woman he ended up marrying. Uh, he's on date with a woman. And uh, Frank Sinatra goes to the bar. Mm-hmm. He finishes his show, goes to the bar. He's sitting at the bar having, you know, a martini or whatever. And... Uh, the woman says, oh, my God, that's Frank Sinatra. Don, don't you know him? Don't you know him? Oh, kind of, you know, but Frank, I mean, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a private guy. You don't want to bother him in a public space like that. Says, oh, my God, it'd be so great to meet him. She goes to the bathroom, and he walks over Sinatra at the bar. And Sinatra loves Rickles at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, you know, he's sort of an adjunct member yeah. of, of the Brat Pack, you know, or the uh, – not the Brat Pack, the Rat Pack, sorry mm-hmm. – uh, he was never a member of the Brad Pack. <laughs> no. I don't think Judd Nelson and Don Rickles <laughs> were ever hanging out. But he's sort of an adjunct, temporary, swing, uh-huh. alt member, you know, of, of the Rat Pack. And uh, Rickles goes up to him and goes, Frank, please, please. And he goes, Don, come on. You know, I don't I don't like doing that shit. So I'm tired. I just did three shows. He goes, Frank, please, this girl, she's really, she's the most beautiful girl who's ever gone out with me. Please, Frank. He goes, I did, Don, Don, I love you. I'm not going to do it. It's a slippery slope. You agree? Said, Frank, please, please. They're crazy about this because the smartest girl I've ever gone with. you got to just come over for one second. Just say hi. Just say hi. It's all you have to do. You don't have to say, you don't have to talk to her. You don't have to introduce yourself. Just say hi. Because fine, Don, fine. I'll do it the one time. But Don goes back to the table, and the date comes back from the bathroom, and Frank Sinatra comes up. And he goes, hey, Don, how's it going tonight? And uh, uh, Rickles goes, Jesus, Frank, can't you see I'm on a date here? <laughs> God damn it. It's so good. It's, it's so, so fucking good. funny. But the key to it is that Rickles is kind of acting like a new heart until the turn. 100%. 100%. That it's just the, the open pleading with mm-hmm. this sort of like, I mean, Sinatra might, has, might have well been the 
silent, non-speaking person on the other end of the phone yeah. in a new heart bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just the ramp up of the pl- please, please. You don't understand. <laughs> Stammering, tripping over his words. Yeah, brilliant. It's amazing. That's so goddamn yeah. good. Um, I do not want to keep you much longer. Okay. So. A uh, couple things. Number one, sure. if let's say nobody's ever heard a Bob Newhart album, why listen to this one first? You don't have to say listen to this one first, but or why listen to this one at all? Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna give it a trick answer, which is to say listen to both of these. Yeah, listen to button mine, button down mine, button down mine, strike back, um, because they really are of a piece. I mm-hmm. think you know they really would have been one album. Yeah. Except at the time that he recorded it, he only had half an album's worth of material. Yeah. But, you know, if he had uh, performed for a year before someone recorded him, mm-hmm. it would have been these two albums together. Yeah. Um, I sort of picked uh, Strikes Back because the, the Monkees is sort of my, you know, platonic ideal of a joke. Yeah. And it's the one that you've discussed less on this show. Um, but I think they are just sort of th- these lightning in a bottle sets. Yeah. And you can feel it in the energy of the audience. I mean, talking about being able to feel the difference in texture of silence, Mm -hmm. there's also a way the audience is listening to him that is very different than where most people are where they record a comedy album, which is they are an established act and the audience is amped to be there. You hear a lot of comedy albums where the audience is just in the pocket from the get-go because they are so starstruck that they're getting to see the night that this person records their historic album. And the new heart thing, it's like he could have been anybody. And he just happens to win this audience over. And you're hearing them laugh in a way. I'm not talking about, you know, they're laughing harder or more. Mm-hmm. But they're laughing in a way where they're, you hear the sort of surprise at, I didn't know this could be funny. Yeah. I didn't know someone could be funny this way. And I never would have guessed that this guy from the moment he came on stage yeah. would kill. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, they're perfectly performed bits. They're perfectly written bits. But more than anything, as just sort of lightning in a bottle sort of time capsules of comedy history. They're really important to understanding the sort of evolution and broadening of stand-up as a medium yeah. and what you could kind of do with it. That's perfect. Yeah. Uh, this has been super fun. Uh, you're welcome. I'm not back saying, yeah, that's perfect. Anything. I'm saying, yeah. I was checking with myself saying, yeah, I think yeah, that's what I want to I say, but to it say. sounded like I was saying, yeah, that was that perfect. That was perfect. Thank it you. was okay. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me on the of show. Of course. You're and, welcome and back anytime. Great. Um, and uh, wh- this is going to come out tonight. So do you want to promote it's anything? Good. Yes, I'd love to. Uh, Tick season two is coming out April 5th. Yay. Uh, my pitch is, uh, uh, what if Bob Newhart was a superhero? <laughs> <laughs> uh, for anyone who's listening to this and doesn't have a frame of reference. That's kind of who I play on the show. 100%. Yeah. Uh, I, play, I play a mild-mannered, a skittish, a stammering accountant who ends up having to fight crime. Yeah. Um, and uh, my podcast is called Blank Check with Griffin and David, which is about movies, but it's also kind of a comedy podcast. Yeah. It's a great podcast. We end up getting podcast. into a lot of bits. Yeah. It's a great show. Thank you. Uh, it stuck in my head the other day when I, I, I will very quickly just promote the Writers Guild Foundation. I was there the other day. I, I, uh, your Edward Scissorhands episode was stuck in my head when I was presented with two giant tubs of things from the screenwriter of Edward Scissorhands, including her own like hand-bound version of the screenplay. Caroline Thompson? She, yes. Wow. Her five-and-a-half-inch floppies. So all of her shit is, is there now, and they're going through that. It's a super cool place. If you guys want to go anywhere to read scripts in L.A., that the Writers Guild Foundation is the place to do it. That's they're a great tip. I will, it's amazing. I will do that. You 100% should. Yeah, I would love that. Um, and I'm going to just very quickly tell people, this is rare that I get to do this, but I'm doing a live show this week 
weekend. I am going to be in Hot Fuzz, but I'm going to be in Minneapolis on stage playing uh, Nick Angel in the movie Hot Fuzz. It's uh, a drinking game, which you guys have heard me talk about a lot, where I where we drink, the audience drinks. Normally, it's here in L.A., but I'm visiting Minneapolis, and we're doing Hot Fuzz there. So that'll be super fun. And... Uh, is that it? I guess that's about it. Um, Griffin, again, thank you for much, for doing the show. For much is what I just said. Yeah. Thank you for much. Thank you for much for having So doing me. this show. Yes. Um, thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. This episode is also underwritten by $300 Data Recovery. Visit 300dollardatarecovery.com to get a quote on their highly recommended data recovery services. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15 plus years. Music